Sounds like the future. Welcome to our podcast from Purdue University's College of Engineering, with this episode featuring the Lyles School of Civil Engineering. The college is celebrating 120 years of history and bold planning for the future. In this episode, you'll meet Chip Latchley, Professor of Environmental Engineering. He describes the links between the broad endeavors of the Lyles School and his own faculty research, which includes protecting water supplies and combating the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm your podcast host, journalist Bill Schmidt, inviting you to continue your journey with this year-long series of interviews about Purdue engineering initiatives and visionary steps for solving problems locally and globally. Welcome, Professor Chip Blatchley. You represent a specialization within civil engineering whose value resonates with a wide variety, wide array of concerned citizens. You're an environmental engineer. And now uh, people will take note that your research includes uh, concerns that uh, cover everybody because of the connection to COVID-19 virus. Uh, Let's start with that, but first I want to give you a proper introduction. You're the Lee A. Reith Professor in Environmental Engineering at Purdue's Lyles School of Civil Engineering. The work of yours that uh, will grab the the headlines right now combines chemistry and physics. It incorporates ultraviolet light, which already has grabbed some attention relevant to the pandemic. Can you uh, briefly describe your efforts relevant to the COVID-19 virus? Sure. I'm just... Full disclosure, I have a joint appointment, actually, in the Lyle School of Civil Engineering and the Division of Environmental and Ecological Engineering. Uh, So my faculty appointment is actually split between those two academic units. Uh, With regard to COVID-19 and the novel coronavirus, so um, the research that we do in my group, um, a large fraction of that research is related to disinfection. Most of that research has been aimed at disinfection of water or aqueous media in general, but the principles that we apply for disinfection of water will apply to a number of other settings and another number of other media. So um, it turns out that UV is a very effective disinfectant against a wide range of organisms, and that's really because the mechanism of inactivation that's attributable to UV is that it causes damage to nucleic acids, DNA and RNA. So, and since every organism has DNA and or RNA in it, that means that at some level, every organism is susceptible to inactivation using UV. So, we're able to inactivate a wide range of organisms. Um, So, when the outbreak, this pandemic, um, sort of emerged a couple months ago, uh, it became pretty evident that UV has several potential roles to play, none of which have been verified yet. But one of the um, important let's say, gaps that exist in the literature right now is that there is no information to describe how effective UV is for inactivation of this specific virus. There is information in the literature to describe the kinetics of inactivation of several related viruses, and that information suggests that UV should be very effective for this particular virus. But right now, those data do not exist. And so one of the things that we're hoping to do and experiments that we want to initiate soon is to define those kinetics so that basically people who want to develop UV-based um, responses to this 
particular pandemic can use those data to as the basis of design. That that is the fundamental foundation of UV-based disinfection systems. Uh, and your research combines UV radiation and chlorine and and other uh, halogen-related chemicals. Am I right? What is what is the extra uh, dual uh, punch there? That's uh, part of the the research. Sure. So we're interested in those two disinfectants, chlorine, or more broadly, the halogens and UV, because they're largely complementary in terms of how they function as disinfectants. So there's some things that chlorine does well that UV doesn't do quite so well, and the opposite is true also. So as an example, there are some microorganisms that are very sensitive to UV radiation that are not particularly sensitive to chlorine. Um, And so if you use these two, and the opposite is true as well. So if you use these two disinfectants together, then we find that we're able to inactivate essentially any microbial pathogen. Um, now, there are other benefits to using UV and chlorine together that have very little to do with disinfection. And that is specifically when we use these things together, we can generate some free radicals that open up reaction pathways, some chemistry that wouldn't have been open available or would, wouldn't have been available otherwise. So the basic idea in using UV and chlorine together is that we can selectively oxidize some contaminants in water or other media, potentially, that could be problematic. Uh, So we've been working in that area, focusing on a group of water contaminants that are particularly nasty, and they appear to be, in fact, selectively degraded by this combined application of chlorine and UV. Now, your research has uh, all been conducted at uh, a Purdue Laboratory, is that a um, a lab and um, a group of researchers that you've been working with for, for quite a while? Yeah. Uh, so in my lab, I have um, students and visiting scholars from, you know, a number of different countries who are conducting research largely, as I described before, usually relating to applications of ultraviolet radiation, chlorine, or both. Um, we are involved in a few other things, but those are that really represents the core of the work that we do in my group. We do, um, historically, at least over my career, we've interacted with a number of other groups on campus, both within and across the College of Engineering and outside the College of Engineering. And in fact, that's one of the big opportunities that I see at Purdue is that really the expertise, analytical capability, or even computational capability that we might require it's available. You know, pretty much we're constrained by what's between our ears, not the resources, the hardware that's available, or for that matter, the people. We have access to pretty much any expertise that might be relevant to what we're looking for. One thing that's clear is the um, international applicability of your work and uh, and, um, the uh, kind of um, overall environmental impact of your, your research. Um, I wanted to just ask in general about the environmental engineering side of engineering and the uh, connection to uh, civil engineering. Um, uh, are you part of a, a relatively large uh, faculty of environmental engineers at Lyles? And uh, how, what's that connection between environmental and civil? Yeah, so so again, my appointment is split between the Lyle School of Civil Engineering and the Division of Environmental and Ecological Engineering. So within civil engineering, the Lyle School of Civil Engineering, there are you know a little over 50 faculty, and there's roughly 10 of us who I think could call ourselves 
environmental engineers, but there's many other people within the School of Civil Engineering who have expertise that's complementary to what we have as a group. So we rely on people who have expertise in fluid mechanics and a number of other areas that are you know, directly relevant to what we do. Um, and then again, outside of civil engineering, uh, within, for example, the Division of Environmental and Ecological Engineering, that's a much broader group of environmental engineers looking at a much broader array of uh, topics that are relevant to the field of environmental engineering. So historically, the environmental engineering, let's say, group within civil engineering has been focused largely on public works projects, whereas the environmental and ecological engineering group is broader than that. Does Purdue teach many aspects, the full spectrum of uh, subjects covered in environmental engineering? I imagine that it's a, a broad and growing field. Well, yes, it is. It is both broad and growing. So it's one of the fastest growing fields within engineering anywhere um, and has been for quite some time. So there's a lot of opportunity within environmental engineering, which is obviously great for us. So at Purdue, the environmental engineering um, area, again, is sort of divided within a couple different academic units. So there is this environmental engineering group that I'm a part of within the School of Civil Engineering. And again, that focuses largely on what has historically been viewed as these sort of municipal scale applications, public works projects and things like that. So water and wastewater treatment, solid and hazardous waste, air pollution issues, you know, those sorts of things. And as I mentioned before, environmental and ecological engineering, which is a separate academic unit within the college, is much broader and brings in expertise from uh, really across the entire College of Engineering and even beyond the College of Engineering. There's a number of faculty who have um, appointments, either um, direct appointments or uh, courtesy appointments within Tripoli, who have expertise that's outside of engineering, but certainly relevant to the environmental topics that we consider. So, for example, we consider issues like sustainability as a big part of the Tripoli mission, whereas it's, I mean, it's certainly part of what we do within the School of Civil Engineering, but um, but perhaps less intentionally so. That interdisciplinarity seems to be one of Purdue's overall strengths, the ease with which specialists in a wide variety of fields can get together and collaborate and work together in labs on uh, on uh, group problems and projects. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I consider that to be one of the real strengths of Purdue is that we really were constrained more by what's between our ears than you know the either the people or the physical infrastructure that exists at the university. Pretty much anything that we need to be able to conduct research is available here, and the people who have expertise are also available here. And I found you know over my career I've been here long enough that I know you know not all of the university, but I know a lot of the things that are going on at the university, and that, that provides opportunities for me to connect with people who have expertise that's you know, entirely complementary to what we do in my group. And just as an example, one of the projects that I was involved in about a decade ago uh, involved people, a group from medicinal chemistry um, and a, a group from um, pure biology that were involved in a group uh, project that was really uh, perhaps one of the most satisfying things I've ever done in my career. And I think it was it was that satisfying and, in fact, that successful because we brought in expertise from these complementary fields. Does it take a, a certain kind of student or at least a certain kind of uh, attitude 
to uh, be in fields like environmental engineering and civil engineering more broadly, perhaps, uh, where it's not just uh, colleagues uh, uh, transcending different uh, borderlines within engineering, but uh, you really have to be collaborative with uh, uh, a range of uh, all sorts of other people, uh, as, uh, scientists, government officials, uh, uh, those in heavy industry and and uh, uh, small business and uh, all sorts of other folks. One doesn't build a bridge alone. No, that's very true. And the projects that we're involved in, as you've mentioned, are very interdisciplinary. And I, that's not unique to my group. I think that is pretty broad across, in fact, the entire College of Engineering. But just focusing on environmental engineering, as you've mentioned, you know, it is a very just inherently interdisciplinary field. Uh, so we uh, just almost by default, we're going to be working with people who have expertise that's outside of sort of our traditional silo. Um, but I really like that. I mean, I, for me and I think for my students, more importantly, I think it just presents real opportunities for us to learn, which is, you know, we're in the business of learning. You know, we're in the business of teaching as well. But you know, I really enjoy learning and I continue to do so. And it's one of the things that, you know, gets me out of bed in the morning. I really enjoy it. You're mentioning uh, thinking outside the silo and, and always kind of uh, pushing the frontiers. Reminds me that uh, the College of Engineering itself is uh, spending a, a large part of this year in a, a kind of incubation and uh, innovation phase that carries the name Purdue Engineering Initiatives. Those are five particular areas, broad but particular and I, I wonder, is uh, civil engineering and or um, uh, environmental engineering uh, in particular, um, uh, are they involved in any of the PEIs? Um, certainly civil engineering is, and especially with respect to space travel, which is one of the priorities there. Um, I have to say that my group is not directly involved in any initiatives, any of those five initiatives right now, uh, but we have been involved with NASA in the past dealing with long-term space missions, uh, specifically because one of the limiting factors on these long-term space missions is water. There's only a finite amount of water that you can bring with you. And, you know, for example, the project that we were working on with NASA related to a long-term mission to Mars, which is expected to take about three years. So imagine how much water you can bring with you to allow you to survive for three years. Well, you can't bring very much because it's a pretty dense fluid, and just weighs a lot, right? So you have some finite amount of water that you're going to bring with you, and that means that over that three-year period, you're going to be reusing it a lot. So that's right in our wheelhouse for what we do. And so we were involved in projects that related to how you use and reuse water many times over this roughly 1,000-day mission that NASA is expecting for travel to and from Mars. I love the fact that civil engineering, which uh, many non-engineers might think of as a field uh, uh, confined to, uh, you know, city limits and city governments and uh, uh, the, the, the practicalities of, of uh, piping water to homes, uh, uh, the expanse is a bit larger than that. First of all, we know it's international because Purdue is so international, but it's even interplanetary. I mean, that's a good point. I, I think, you know, there's there will always be this municipal component of civil engineering. That is, in fact, the roots of the field. But in, in the long term, you know, there's there's 
you know, there's a number of other things that we are involved in that, and that our ex expertise applies directly to. So I'm not sure that there's really very many faculty within the School of Civil Engineering who feel constrained by the traditional boundaries of civil engineering. In fact, I think probably most faculty are looking beyond those traditional boundaries. Again, many of us are involved in projects and you know, research, certainly also involved in teaching that relates to those specific things, those traditional applications for civil engineering and more specifically environmental engineering that I'm involved in. But I know, I know that there's there's a wide range of activities that we're involved in that would not fit into that traditional box at all. And uh, again, but they're natural translations from the things that we do. Now, uh, we, we uh, started uh, mentioning uh, the diverse uh, kinds of uh, uh, people and organizations uh, that, uh, that you would uh, be uh, collaborating with. Uh, would you care to mention any of uh, the, uh, I don't know, the, the companies or, or sectors in the, uh, either the public or, or uh, for-profit sector, uh, as well as peer institutions and grant-making bodies and, uh, uh, I, I presume, numerous alumni. Are there all sorts of networks of connections that uh, you come up uh, uh, with uh, in the course of a day? Sure. I mean, we have connections in all of those categories that you just listed, and you know, we try to take advantage of those as appropriate. Um, you know, in terms of the research that we're involved in, I mean, you know, going back to this COVID-19 situation and the novel coronavirus, there's a couple of proposals that we're involved in right now that involve colleagues from a university in Canada and another university on the East Coast of the United States who bring in expertise that complements what we're able to bring to these projects. Um, and so, you know, those, you know, the, the network is out there and we try to take advantage of that, recognizing that there is expertise that um, will strengthen what we're able to do. And we hope that we're able to strengthen what these other people are able to do as well. The, uh, the students uh, that you're able to work with in the, in the lab and in the classroom, uh, would you say that uh, they are indeed getting a, a different kind of education now than they might have gotten five or ten years ago in a school of civil engineering or in a program of environmental engineering? And do you see that kind of teaching and learning uh, evolving in substantial ways uh, down the road? Just uh, five or ten years from now, are there lots of changes ahead for the fields? Well, I think the current situation with the pandemic is certainly going to bring about various changes. I mean, I, I can't see how that will not be true. Actually, I think just in terms of how we teach and some of the things that we focus on, those things are going to change by by definition, I think, given the current situation. But even if we didn't have this current situation, I think there is always an effort to be changing and hopefully improving how we teach. And, and you know, the nature of research is to, you know, discover new things. You know, so I, I certainly expect that things are going to be changing. Um, and, you know, hopefully those changes will bring about improvements. Um, you know, some of it's sort of an experiment in and of itself to try to bring out those, try to bring about those improvements. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I certainly don't expect it to be a stagnant field at all. I think, you know, stagnancy in higher education is, a, you know, a recipe for death, you know, so we just don't want to go there. Uh, I'd be interested uh, in if there are, if there are one or two particular uh, uh, areas that you already see perhaps uh, uh, changing uh, because of, um, COVID-19. 
uh, and uh, the whole concern about uh, public health, etc. Uh, uh, any any examples of of uh, projects or or uh, directions, trajectories being taken uh, down the road that are are a pretty sure bet. Well, I think the most obvious relates to, in fact, the medium that we're taking advantage of right now um, for social distancing. Uh, you know, I think we, like most other universities, I think have transitioned essentially all of our in-person teaching to distance teaching. And, you know, the students, by definition, then have also transitioned from in-person learning to, in to distance learning. You know, that is a, that's a, that is a non-trivial transition for everyone involved. And, you know, we were all, both the faculty and the students were basically, you know, moved into this with very little warning. Um, I have to say that I've been impressed by how the students have responded to this situation. It's not perfect. And, you know, we on the, the teaching side are still learning in terms of, you know, how to do this well and to be able to do it in a way that's effective for the students. I do think that even if this pandemic had not happened, that there, it was pretty clear that a move toward distance education is going to happen. So, in fact, within the School of Civil Engineering, more broadly within the College of Engineering, there's an effort underway to develop what are called affordable master's programs within civil engineering, mechanical engineering, and electrical and computer engineering. Again, that, that process was started before the pandemic um, you know, started itself in January. So it's just sort of a happy coincidence, I suppose. One of the good outcomes of this is that, you know, we are, I think, going to be forced to get better at doing distance education. It is going to be part of our future. It would have been anyway. And in a sense, this is forcing us to get better at it faster than we would have in the past. Um, my guess is that there's, you know, quite a bit of research that relates to, you know, how to do teaching in a distance format. Um, that's not something that I'm focusing on other than just sort of anecdotally by the way that I'm transitioning uh, the classes that I teach. But uh, going forward, there is a plan, again, to develop these affordable master's programs, basically graduate education. Um, sort of a peripheral project that I'm involved in with this that, again, I think will benefit from these circumstances is that I'm writing a book on applications of UV radiation which have been a core of the research that we do in my group for a long time. And I'm going to be developing a class to be taught for distance education. That was the original plan. And my, my reasons for that plan really were that the ways that UV radiation is used in engineering applications, for example, in the United States, are in many respects different than how it's used in other countries, like, for example, in Asia. So the idea with this... Um, international intercultural class that I intend to be teaching from that book uh, is to bring together people from across these different countries with different cultures and different constraints to bring them together in the same class where the same fundamental principles will apply in all applications but we'll have an opportunity to share these sort of different experiences and different constraints that we have in these different countries. So I'm really looking forward to that opportunity and again in a sense we're being forced to do this as a result of the current COVID situation. It sounds like Purdue as a university uh, is well situated to be playing a role in uh, everything that uh, uh, evolves in um, environmental engineering and, and civil engineering uh, and communicating that to a broader audience. Well, that's my expectation. My expectation specifically is that we will play a leadership role in that um, in that area, especially as related to what I was just describing, 
with respect to distance education. I think we have a real opportunity there uh, to establish sort of a unique program in that area, and um, I'm really looking forward to that opportunity. That's really exciting, and uh, right out of today's headlines, but also really peering ahead into the future, including uh, space travel and uh, international uh, work. Thank you very much, first of all, for being involved in all of those important uh, areas of engineering, and uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we appreciate being joined by Dr. Chip Blatchley. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate your time. The future is just beginning at the college. In this episode, you've heard Professor Chip Blatchley representing the Lyles School of Civil Engineering. Learn more about Lyles at engineering.purdue.edu slash CE. Click on Our People for more about Blatchley. Our podcast's original theme music, More to Come, is by C. Chris Peters. Audio production is by Purdue grad and staff member Saad Mukhtar. I'm your host, Bill Schmidt. See you in the future.